0: A simple child, dear brother Jim, that lightly draws its breath, and feels its life in every limb. What should it know of death? Welcome to another episode of Sunday Morning Poetry on the Troubadour podcast. Today we are going to cover the poem We Are Seven by William Wordsworth, continuing our exploration of lyrical ballads 1798. Now, in exploring this book quite a bit, and at this point, I've now for myself read all of the six great poets, the great works, most of the great works of the six great poets William Blake, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, Byron, and of course, Coleridge. I'm no expert, but I'm now starting to get a little bit more of an understanding of what the Romantic movement really was and what it was about and how it worked. And this is what we're starting to explore more. And one of the things that occurred to me, and just as a a playful thought as I explored this, is who among these six were the greatest? Who is the greatest of all the Romantics? Who is the greatest of all the Romantic English poets? Is a more fair judgment. It's a little bit difficult to judge a William Blake against a Victor Hugo or an Edmond Rostand, because not only are they separated by different by, by by different countries and different languages and different somewhat different eras. William Blake was one of the oldest of the of all the Romantics, but Blake was actually a visual artist, a painter. So one of his most famous works is a a painting called Newton. Which you just have to see. Um, let me just again uh, give you an idea of what he he's creating here. And you know, Blake is, is doing many other great works of visual arts. In fact, he would engrave and and uh, create paintings for all of his poems, or for for all of his major poems. And he created these very odd and and awe inspiring books that had these types of paintings in them or or plates, and he would draw along with his great poetry. And so he had a a very interesting impact on the Romantic movement. And, you know, again, he's with visual art as well as poetry. So William Blake has a a deep impact on both of these. Now, I'm not um, an expert in paintings. I've definitely looked at a lot and, and inspected them to the best of my ability, but you know, for instance, the way he does musculature here is really unique, and it's it reminds me personally of um, the po- or one of his famous paintings of a dragon. That um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. It just popped in my head now. But there's a, I think it's just called Hannibal or, or some. It's oh no, the Red Dragon. So there's a there's a movie called The Red Dragon. I think it is with uh, Hannibal Lecter. It's a prequel to Silence of the Lambs and the guy thinks that he's an incarnation of the dragon that William Blake makes and in fact he actually goes into um these archives and eats one of the i don't know if it's an original or one of the this a famous in, you know engraving or something like that like he eats it cuz he thinks that's, you know he's imbibing it um that it's that's part of who he is anyway my my point is that he um you know William Blake had had poetry he had um you know and he had painting so it's hard it's hard to evaluate him in exact relation in terms of greatness and what we even mean by greatness in terms of uh, someone like Victor Hugo. But we can definitely do this with the romantics and with the romantic poets, Um, you know, for instance, I think we, we could think about, well, let's see, we want, let's say we want to focus on poetry itself, right? So William Blake had great poetry. um, But I think there, you know, he's mostly a visual artist and a poet And I think he's not quite as, you know, he didn't have quite the impact that Wordsworth had overall in his poetry and the influence to this day that Wordsworth had overall. Um, Lord Byron had Child's Herald, um, which was a long, epic poem. It's one of the few epic poems of this time that is like this style, although they all kind of wanted to and tried their hand at it. Wordsworth, for instance, tried his hand and created the prelude, which is probably the pinnacle today for art historians or, or uh, literary historians of what the literary romantic movement of that time, the English romantics meant and, and what they were capable of. So there is something you know um, important about that element that um, Byron, that's his main thing he, that he's known for. he did other epic poems. He's mostly known, I think, as a romantic figure in a lot of ways. And when we think about the Byronic universe, Coleridge also is known primarily, um, he he did the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is unprecedented in its overall impact on the movement. It, in a sense, launches the movement. He, along with um, Wordsworth, kind of launched the movement of Romanticism by lyrical ballads in 1798. Now, Shelley is an interesting figure, too. He has some amazing um, short poems that are very impactful. I think one of his great works is Prometheus Unbound, which is almost an answer to Aeschylus's poem, uh, drama, I should say, of ancient Greece called Prometheus Bound. And it is, you know, Prometheus Unbound, which was I think impossible to produce as a play. Um, You know, again, all the all the English Romantics of the this era wanted. To create their own kind of drama like this, he was the only one who did, but it was somewhat unproducible to some degree. I think we get the great playwright, um, although there's many playwrights in this era, I think one of the greatest comes a lot later, um, Edmund Rostand. Now, if we're going to evaluate pure poetry, I think it personally, at this point in my understanding, I think it comes down to Keats and Wordsworth. And, you know, so I've thought about them a lot and I've thought about their their corresponding differences. They're quite different in a lot of ways. Um, Keats, for instance, is much more interested in mythology and in, in the mythology that's already been passed down to him, whereas Wordsworth is quite a bit more original in a lot of ways. He wants to create his own mythology, he wants to create what Milton with religion of Christianity. He wants to create his own Christianity in a sense. Like he wants to create his own religion and the mythology that goes along with it. So, I mean, he's a bit of a bigger thinker than Keats in a lot of ways. And Keats is not a deep thinker in the sense that Wordsworth is, or as profound, at least not in his uh, ambition that I can see. However, the interesting thing about these two characters, if we think of them as two of the pure poets of the big six, Romantic poets is that you know, to put this in perspective of the differences in terms of their lifespan and what they accomplished in their lifespan, had uh, were Wordsworth to have died at the same age that Keats died, we never would have heard of Wordsworth. So just to give you an example, I mean just so you understand, Keats died at twenty five years old, having accomplished obviously everything that he had written up to that point all the great works that he had written. And there's a two year period in his life. That's considered one of the most productive periods in English, um, English literature, literary history period. And in all um, had Keats or, or had Wordsworth died at 25. Then we never would have had lyrical Ballads, which he published when he was almost 29. So that's, that's a big difference. Now, On the other hand, Wordsworth paved the way, we could say, because he was quite a bit older than Keats. Um, He was born in 1770. So Keats was born in 1795. So he was 15 years younger than Wordsworth, and Wordsworth had, in a big way, paved the way for Keats to accomplish a lot of what he did by creating the style, the movement, the ideas behind it, working with Coleridge to really express the ideas, you know, he um, had gone through, a, by the time Keats starts to rise in the late 18, um, 18, 19, 20, 21, and that era, that couple years, you know, there, this is when Coleridge, or excuse me, Wordsworth and Coleridge, but especially Wordsworth, has really become an increasing influence by this point. He's he's, very, he's become much more powerful. People believe in him. People agree with him. People, you know, start to see his method of, um, creating poetry a little bit more by this point now. So, you know, in my estimation of of evaluating the greatest of these poets, you know, (laughs) it's kind of difficult. And I think it's, it's similar to trying to ask which part of the Pacific ocean is the wettest. So it's, I'm not sure it's even really fully possible. I think you can develop certain standards. But one thing I wanted to say is that to lead into our poem, We Are Seven, one of the many advantages that Wordsworth had besides survival, which is a pretty big advantage because it allows him to create works that, you know, Keats just didn't have time for. And there is something about Keats's work that's very haunting that that kind of I think the fact that he died early and many of the poets like Byron and Shelley died very early that And Coleridge died somewhat early, too. It, it was really only Wordsworth and, and Byron who lived into much older age. And, you know, so there's something about that that almost feeds into our view of when we say he's romantic, right? The, not romantic in terms of bringing flowers, but there's a kind of romanticism to his life. That he lives high with emotion and passion, and he dies. So it's it's always you know very considered when we think of being romantic. as very impractical. It's all emotion and passion and no practicality, right? And that you know you can't survive that way. You can't live you know burning the the candle on both ends kind of kind of idea. And there there is some truth to the way that that he um, had that now in terms of that that view. But it's not fully correct, and it's not really fair. And that's what we're trying to explore here. These poets had a very firm and um, staunch belief in their own form of reason and what they thought was reason, and how the imagination worked with reason. But they were very staunch reason you know reasonable people. They believed the senses were critical. In fact, Wordsworth, the the main epic poem that was going to be his life work called "The Recluse," which he never finished. He created parts of it, like the Prelude. There's a segment of The Recluse called The Excursion that he published, and it's considered one of the great works, and one of Keith's favorite works, by the way. And in these works, and what he's trying to do, and what he and and Coleridge had envisioned with this, and it was Coleridge's first plan, and he kind of supplanted it on Wordsworth because he realized Wordsworth was the much greater poet, which is true. One of the ways that, and one of the things that he was going to do was going to create segments for each of the five senses. So there was going to be a whole way of how to integrate from hearing a whole, you know, epic segment on, you know, the the eyes and the observing of the world and integrating those into concepts. And same thing with taste and with smell and with touch, all of the five senses that was going to be their religion. It's taking the five senses, the five pathways to, re- to reason, as they put it, and to integrate that through the imagination. Imagination to them was the integrating faculty for all of these things. And that is, you know, that was the work that they were trying to develop, and there was something very grand and epic. And so reason is, is such a critical part that we don't talk about with the romantics, and yet they talked about a lot. It was very important to them. But they, what they were rebelling against, all of the romantics, was rationalism, was the rationalism and the, of the classicism that came before them where you had to be, like, you know, how, it was basically what it amounted to was authoritarianism. He, these rules are set down, and this is how you're supposed to do it. And they're saying, no, 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 we need to look out and then think for ourselves. And that's really a big part of what they were um, fighting for. And, what, and, and passion to them was actually a manifestation of being human. And so, you know, you still need to live by experiencing your own life because it's the only one you got. Now, one advantage that Wordsworth had, another advantage, or one one advantage Wordsworth had over Keats, for instance, was that he lived long and that he actually experienced life in a way that Wordsworth didn't, or Keats didn't. Keats sat in his room a lot. He pined away for, um, you know, his neighbor girl a lot he wrote epic poems or you know these grand poems that were based on art that other people created and it's kind of almost an homage to them and it's a mythology that he's admiring from the past now at the the age of 20 you know early 20s mid 20s before wordsworth writes the lyrical ballads he is in a i mean he is writing he's been writing since he was a kid just like keats does i mean all no great poet just comes out of nowhere he's been writing poetry he's done a lot of you know good poetry for his age he's always considered a good poet for his age but he hasn't come into his own until he's you know in his late 20s and really much later than that he's not considered a great poet in his own life uh, until he's in his you know 40s 50s and then above and then he becomes you know a poet laureate of of uh, England but when he's young he actually goes to France during the revolution he meets a, a French aristocratic woman named Annette Vallon. He impregnates her. They have a kid. And th- during the, f- the reign of terror, 1793, you know, she's an aristocrat. He's a Republican. He actually writes letters in favor of Republicanism. He's, you know, and, and this is very detrimental to him financially over the course of his life or over, at least over the next 15 years or so. And, you know, so he does this during uh, um, this turbulent time of his life. He's experiencing life in a way that Keats never got to, you know, and never did because he was too sickly in his life. And so he's, he's seeing all these things and he's going on walking tours all over the place. And at the time that Keats is writing these amazing poets, in emulation of mythology from the past, for instance, Wordsworth is living. And what Wordsworth's poems amount to are observations of his incidents and events in real life, a life that Keats never had. And this is one of the ways that I think the poetry and the language is much more real but also romantic in a way that Keats is a stereotypical purely romantic where there's no, you know, it's, it's all about um, you know, myths of uh great heroes of the past or just, you know, a, a, you know, a butterfly, for instance, or that represents the soul from ancient Greece that's not, and there, there's a certain suke uh, model of this old old school, um, or this, this, you know, myth from thousands of years ago that hasn't been properly um, uh, revered. So he creates uh, the reverence that he's going to create by creating a, a, a model in his mind or a, a temple in his mind for this. This is the kind of poetry that he does. It's it's a lot about that. Not all of it, of course. There's there's other things, but that's a big part of it. Wordsworth is, he goes out in the world, he meets individuals, as you've seen when we explore this, there's real incidents that these are based on, and that's where he creates his poetry. You know, as he said, poetry, uh, Wordsworth said, poetry is an overflow of emotion recollected in tranquility. And of course, Keats did not have that. Now, in 1793, the Reign of Terror, Wordsworth is going on a walking tour among one of the things, and many seeds for future poems are placed in his mind. He doesn't have the, um, you know, he's not writing a ton right now, but he's living in a lot of the seeds that are going to happen. So for instance, you know, how he thinks about it is there were incidents and images, right? This is events and things he saw which then impressed themselves on his mind to be mulled over in future years recollected in tranquility and subtly infused with his own imaginative coloring. So, for instance, while on a walking tour, he met a pretty little girl, about eight years old, who insisted she was one of seven children, even though two of her siblings were dead. Her refusal... To accept that she was now one of five led William to write We Are Seven as an illustration of children's inability to grasp death. Now, if you remember from last week, Anecdote for Fathers, we did something somewhat similar where we looked at, you know, the, the view of a child's psychology and consciousness in context. And that's another one that Wordsworth is thinking about here. So in exploring this poem today, I think we want to put into perspective that this is a real incident. He ran into a girl like this, and then just like many of his poems, he then infuses it or he puts it through the forge of his imaginative consciousness and comes out with the beautiful language, the simplistic, in a sense, you know, everyday language, more everyday than most great poets that we are going to see here. So let's do a reading of this and then let's talk about it. We Are Seven by William Wordsworth. A simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb. What should it know of death? I met a little girl. She was eight years old. She said her hair was thick "'with many a curl that clustered round her head. "'She had a rustic woodland air, "'and she was wildly clad. "'Her eyes were fair and very fair. "'Her beauty made me glad. "'Sisters and brothers, little maid, "'how many may you be?' "'How many? Seven and all,' she said, "'and wondering looked at me. "'And where are they, I pray you tell?' "'She answered, Seven are we,' And two of us at Conway dwell, and two of us are gone to sea. Two of us in the churchyard lie, my sister and my brother. And in the churchyard cottage I dwell near them with my brother, mother. You say that two at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea, yet ye are seven? I pray you tell, sweet maid, how this may be. Then did the little maid reply, Seven boys and girls are we. Two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. You run about, my little maid. Your limbs, they are alive. If two are in the churchyard laid, then ye are only five. Their graves are green. They may be seen, the little maid replied. Twelve steps or more from my mother's door, and they are side by side. My stockings there I often knit my kerchief there I hem, and there upon the ground I sit and sing a song to them. And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. The first that died was Sister Jane, and bed she moaning lay, till God released her of her pain, and then she went away. So in the churchyard she was laid, and... When the grass was dry, together round her grave we played, my brother John and I. And when the ground was white with snow, and I could run and slide, my brother John was forced to go, and he lies by her side. How many are you then, said I, if they two are in heaven? Quick was the little maid's reply, O oh, master, we are seven. But they are dead, those two are dead. Their spirits are in heaven. T'was throwing words away. For still the little maid would have her will and said, Nay, we are seven. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I did make one or two mistakes. I apologize. But we'll we'll read through it slowly, um, stanza by stanza. I think it's a pretty simple poem in terms of what the words are saying. I mean, you kind of should get it. And, and you have this indication that when you have this long line or a pause at the beginning here, there this definitely, if you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, or TroubadourMag.com, you could see there's this dash, this long dash, it's like an extended M-dash. Is uh starts off a simple child, which kind of indicates it it starts in the middle of a thought. You know, it's it's almost like you're you're walking and you're thinking about, oh, look at that, bro- ooh, a simple child. You know, it's like, oh, well, who's this simple child, right? And, and you just kind of enter, it's almost like your your thought was interrupted and, oh, here we're beginning this poem. So it starts a simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb, which should it know of death. Now this, you know, one way I've, I've tried to help you in terms of reading poetry when you're not familiar with it is especially something like uh, Wordsworth is everything is very conscious he knows this is going to be your first experience with this poem and so like many poems before it in a kind of almost a sonnet way is it sets up what the poem is about so it's it's about a simple child that's the subject a simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb right if you when you see young children 7 8 years old they're so full of energy It feels like this is the embodiment of what we mean when we say life with a capital L, right? When we distinguish between, are you living or just existing, right? Like, are you just breathing and and eating food and going to the bathroom and sleeping and that's your life? Or are you really alive, right? What do we mean when we say that, right? Alive, right? It's alive. What do we mean by that? And a child really embodies that. you know, they're jumping around, they're excited. Sometimes you want them to calm down, but they won't calm down. And so there's there's life in every limb, right? There's And it's just is kind of coursing through a child. So what should it know of death? Like there's, you would think that a child, just by looking at it, is farther from death than anything, right? The older you get, the closer to death you become. Now, he goes into his poem, in the, or into his story, in the second stanza. So The first stanza, you know, he sees this simple child, it invokes this thought of, you know, like it's you're looking at this child, and if you're a contemplative person, you might think, well, how could any child ever die? Right, like, well, how could ever any child ever think of death? I mean, look at the life that's in this. You know, and, and I could never imagine what it would be like to lose a child, but the, that part of it, I, think, I mean, it's always horrible. But when you see a little child that's just so full of life and then, you know, think about it gone, that child, it's just a crazy thought. Partly, I think, because of its distance visually from death. I met a cottage girl. So it's, you know, an ordinary peasant girl. I met a cottage, little cottage girl. She was eight years old, she said. Her hair was thick with many a curl that clustered round her head. So again, he's emphasizing visuals that show the kind of person she is. She's this curly haired little girl you know it's probably just in disarray, kind of curly hair that's clustered round her head, it's kind of you know bashed around there, and she had a rustic woodland air she was a she was wildly clad, her eyes were fair and very fair. Her beauty made me glad, so she's kind of a wood nymph this is you know, he's drawing, this is again a big difference between him and Keats, is he uses the kind of imagery from ancient, you know, mythology of like, you know, little wood nymphs and and just woodland fairies dancing around that you might see if you read Homer or something or, or, you know, ancient Greek play. But he's not calling it that, he's not talking about that, he's just using the visuals, he's just saying that this, that though, you know, it's kind of implying that those ancient stories, those mythologies, are based on people like me back then who saw these creatures and imagined something about them and then said some great truth. So that's what Wordsworth's kind of mission is. The difference is that he doesn't rely on them. he's creating it anew, as in the world is starting anew with Wordsworth. That's what you know he's, he's considered, by the way, very egotistical in his work and in his life, his demeanor and everything which I take to be a pretty good thing about him, is that, you know, for him, the world starts with him, right? And he's going to create that world for, the, for everybody else. And his world's going to be the best. So she had a rustic woodland air, like a, like a wood nymph. And she was wildly clad, right? You could imagine twigs in her hair. Maybe she's a little bit dusty. Her eyes, though, were fair. Her eyes were fair and very fair. Her beauty made me glad. So he likes looking upon her. She's a cute little girl. Sisters and brothers, this is a quote. Sisters and brothers, little maid, how many may you be? How many others like you are there? How many, she says. How many? Seven in all, she said, and wondering looked at me. And where are they? I pray you tell. She answered, seven are we, and two of us at Conway dwell, that's a location, and two are gone to see, so two have left. Probably older brothers or sisters. Two of us in the churchyard lie. Churchyard, why would they lie in the churchyard? Because they're under you know, on the ground, they're dead. My sister and my brother. And in and in the churchyard cottage, I dwell near them with my mother. You say that two at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea, yet ye are seven? I pray you tell sweet maid how this may be. Then did the little maid reply, Seven boys and girls are we? Two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. It's almost like she's speaking to an idiot, right? Then did the little maid reply, just very simply, she just answers, you know. So he says, Yeah, he, um he, he asks a question in a sense, it's although it's a statement, but he asks a question. You say that two at Conway dwell and two are gone to sea? Okay, that's four. You're f- Five, yet ye are seven. I pray you tell, sweet maid, how this may be. And then did the little maid reply Seven boys and girls are we. Two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. Like it's just common sense. You run about, my little maid. Your limbs, they are alive, right? He's stuck on this limbs thing. Right, she's moving and of course the coffin your hands are to you know your hands are like at your at your on your chest or at your side or something and they're very stiff yet she is the opposite of that your limbs they are alive if two are in the churchyard laid then ye are only five their graves are green they may be seen the little maid replied 12 steps or more from my mother's door And they are side by side. Now he's breaking his kind of rhythm of you run about, look, my little maid. If two are in the churchyard laid, their graves are green. They may be seen. So she's emphasizing here. Twelve steps or more from my mother's door. Those are that's one line. So, you know, she's she's making an emphasis again, kind of just stating the obvious. Their graves are green. They may be seen, you know, so it's like I can still see them. They exist, they're right there. You know, she she's not connecting what he's trying to talk about in terms of life and death. Their graves are green, they may be seen, the little maid replied. They're only 12 steps or more from my mother's door, and they are side by side. So they're they're together, right? They're closer to her than the brothers that are, you know, or the, the siblings that are out at sea, or the ones that are farther away at, at Conway dwell. My stockings there I often knit. My kerchief there I hem, so she's knitting and working side by side with her brothers that are own or her brother and sister that are only twelve steps from her door. My stockings there I often knit, my kerchief there I hem, and there upon the ground I sit, and sing a song to them. And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. So again, she has two she has two siblings out at sea. She has two buildings, siblings far away at, at another town. And her two siblings that are dead are right next to her. So to her, the siblings that are right next to her are closer and, you know, more real than the ones that are out at sea and at another location. The first that died was Sister Jane. In bed she moaning lay. till so God released her of her pain and then she went away. So in the churchyard she was laid and when the grass was dry. Together round her grave we played, my brother John and I. So, you know, she, she acknowledges that the the sister Jane was moaning and God released her pain and she went away. So there is a sense where she went away, but she went away 12 steps from them. So in the churchyard she was laid. And when the grass was dry, d- dry, her brother John, so it's Jane and John, pretty plain Jane names, my brother John and Jane, and they they kind of, dancing around. Not that there's anything wrong if your name is Jane or John. And when the ground was white with snow, and I could run and slide, my brother John was forced to go, and he that lies by her side. So, you know, it it's kind of like, oh, he had to go too. He couldn't play anymore. He's lying there now as well. How many are you then, said I, if they too are in heaven? Quick was the little maid's reply. Oh, master, we are seven. Right? She's still like, are you after you slow, what's wrong with you? Right, if you've ever um counteracted what a young child knows to be true, right? Like if they're taught their ABCs and you try to mash it up and say you're you're you know FCDs or something, and they'd be like, What you're crazy, it's ABCs, you know what that like, what are you, you're so stupid. <laughs> like that's how they kind of will talk to you if you counteract something that they know to be certain in their in their little minds. Oh, master, we are seven. But they are dead. Those two are dead. Their spirits are in heaven. Twas throwing words away, for still the little maid would have her will, and said, Nay, we are seven. Now, I think the totality of this poem, again, a very simple poem, and it was very well-received in its time. Actually, it's one of the poems in the 1798 lyrical ballads that was well-received. And I think why, again, is you have a simplicity, you have this experience, and it doesn't have some kind of pure, or or necessarily a super profound message, but there is something very subtle going on in there, where this girl is refusing to agree or understand, or she's incapable of really understanding what's happening in terms of the death of her brother and sister, that she understands that they, quote unquote, went away. Right. She understands that they're not in the same form that they were when she met them. But to her, they still live, they still exist, they're still part of her family. And again, if you think about the two brothers that are um, the two siblings that went to sea. So how does it go? It says, Seven are we, and two of us at Conway dwell. That's just the location. And two are gone to sea. So those four four are farther away from her and her reality than the observation of these two that lie in the church and this to wordsworth was really impactful because it was saying that she she was saying in her own way that she didn't understand fully what death was or maybe he doesn't you know if you're a religious person you might think of they're never really gone they're always you know it's sure the body's dead but the spirit is there god took the you know jane and john but she's really right here with me so the the poem like a lot of words with poems is very subtly de- uh, you know ha- has a subtle morality to it i think it goes back to in this case the beginning of the poem which starts a simple child that lightly draws it you know it's emphasizing as much as you can emphasize that it. it's a simple child so it's not you know it's it's wisdom in children which is a very romantic notion. It comes again from Rousseau, who believed that savages and children left to their own devices were actually better off than civilized man at that time. And I think this unfortunate idea, which is nonsense, but this unfortunate (laughs) idea spread into the English Romantics and in throughout all of Romanticism. Uh, And and you see that in a lot of the poetry, and, and you see that here, when he sees this child and he thinks that there must be something profound And what she's saying. And, you know, in a sense, there is something interesting about it that this child, you know, in terms of learning child psychology and what it means to be a child and how a child experiences the world. And in this case, she experiences the world as that her she's one of seven. They're they're not gone just because, um, you know, they're not in your face right now. Like she can play with them. She can eat food with them. She can sing with them or to them at least, you know, all the things she did when they were moving around and God had not taken them. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that. Stick around tomorrow for Metaphysical Mondays where we're going to do another poem by John Donne. And also, we have a special announcement is I um, and myself and Jeff Britting, the former archivist of the Ayn Rand Institute. He helped build the Ayn Rand Institute. He's worked in Hollywood for over 30 years as well. He's an Academy Award-nominated uh, composer or, or for a film and he, that he helped compose and, and edit and worked on. And um, so we sat down and we're, try, we're experimenting with a new show that I'd love to get your feedback on. It's called Peering at Things. And the, the general concept is we're going to look at an, an object, a you know, piece of a manuscript, a, a, a picture, and we're going to talk about its influence and importance then and now how it would have impacted that era, whether it was 50, 60, 70 years ago, like we did this last Sunday um, that's now released on troubadourmag.com. You can see the, the episode where we talked about a 1950s um, picture of James Dean waiting around in Hollywood for a, a role. And the, the movie actually, we, we went into a long discussion. I think you'll find interesting, especially if you saw the movie once, um, once upon a time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. So we talked about that. We're gonna hopefully, if you like this show, we're gonna do more of these types of things where we'll kind of play with something, some image, and we hope to do a manuscript from Ayn Rand to you know about writers, something that's not generally popular to, or not as much known. Um, and we're gonna look at this little page and we're gonna talk about that. So stick around for that. Go to TroubadourMag.com, sign up, you know, share this, help us spread the word. We're not charging you any money for any of this stuff. So help spread the word about all the the content we're creating about great literature and how to make it accessible to everyone. Okay, thank you very much for uh, Sunday Morning Poetry, and I'll see you next time.